I like the title of this series, Love and War. Hello. It'd be great if it was all love, but but there's some war. I'm going to speak today on the subject, fight for your family. Fight for your family. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord. We're excited about the principles of how we are to parent because you're our parent. You're our father. And we as parents want to know how to do that better the way you do it with us. We ask you now, Lord, to just bless us, bless our kids, and let us produce a legacy of leadership. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. All right. Um, Five boys and a girl. I've got uh, now nine grandchildren. Two more on the way. In fact, last year I had four boys. The four horsemen arrived last last year, and I, I just I'm just uh, really starting to compress my thoughts about parenting. Now I do a blog. Uh, it's free. It can come to your inbox every Monday. And last week was on four particular perspectives about parenting. I mean, I didn't even know I'd be speaking on parenting here, but my blog tomorrow is also on parenting at LarryStocksville.com. So please check that out because I'm doing some of the same principles I'm teaching you this morning. And I want to speak to you, Nehemiah, in in Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 14, said these words, Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Now, of course, I speak to men everywhere. I've done a model man conference here before, but I want to speak particularly to men and, of course, to their wives about fighting for your family. You know, I think your family is about the only thing worth fighting over. Can you say amen? I mean, you have to fight for them. And, and when you have children, you and I are the ones responsible to help them integrate into society in the future, to bear their own children. We're looking now four generations away. I've got my children, my grandchildren. My dad was alive until February of last year, so he saw his grandchildren. He saw his great-grandchildren. He had uh, my children were his uh, my grandchildren were his great grandchildren, and it, and it, and it's four generations. We're right there in my own home. So you have to start thinking of your life, not just of your pleasure, your enjoyment, but of generations that will come after you. And that's what Nehemiah was. He was raising up walls. He was raising up families from a devastated city there in Jerusalem. And I've been thinking about the life of Abraham. Because Abraham was, is called our father. Abraham, our father, is what the scripture calls him. He's a perfect father example. And let me give you this morning five things, five concepts that come to me from the life of Abraham. Now that I've raised all my kids, my last one was married uh, last April, and just got, they just got found out they were pregnant this month, which is awesome. And he's 23, she's 21. And But now the last one cleared the treetops, hallelujah. So now we're empty nesters and everything is, isn't that beautiful? I mean, it's, how many of you are empty nesters? Raise your hand up. Yeah, wow. It's the rest of you want to be, don't you? <laughs> so I can tell you now, I had kids in my home 32 years. I had a kid in my home. 
So all I'm going to do is just, I'm going to share. They all serve the Lord. They're all married, godly kids, and they're all ministers in our church. They work on staff. Unbelievable, all six of them. That's right. Give the Lord praise. So I'm not going to preach. I'm going to impart. I'm going to share. I'm going to father on you a little bit. Five things that Abraham did to raise up Isaac and to raise up children. The first one that he did is that he dedicated them. And I'm going to put these somewhere. I've got the notes up here. There they are. He dedicated them. And I've been reading in Genesis 21 and verse 4. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Now, let me, let me just, let me start right there because, you know, circumcision only started with Abraham. And so his first son, Isaac, he circumcised him when he was eight days old. Right at the beginning of life, he injected the kingdom of God into his son. Now, I want to speak to you about the first five years of a child's life. Oh, parents, don't, they're trying to survive in the first five years. I know I have uh, a couple. One of my couples is living with me. My third son and his wife were flooded in August. So they've been living with me six months. And their two little children, uh, Destin and Ansley, are there. And man, it, it, when you see those babies, you know, my daughter has three under three. She just had one born two weeks ago. So she's got three under the age of three. Say, help her, Lord. Come on now. So when, you're, when they're that age, and I remember that age, Joel was four, Jonathan was two, Jared was just born, and it, it was hair, teeth, and eyeballs, as we say. I mean, it was rough. So you're just trying to survive. But let me give you a perspective of the first five years of life. It's wet concrete. That's the best way to think about it. It's wet concrete. You can still move concrete. When they're pouring concrete, there's about an hour so you can move it around. But when about an hour or whatever goes by, that concrete, you better have it kind of like you want it. Because you can still modify concrete after a couple of three hours, but not very much. And what, I, what parents don't know about the first five years of life is that's the main time you can shift and move their character. And, and you say, well, five years, I got plenty of time. Well, think, think with me, it's only 250 weekends. That's the first five years. You've got 250 weekends to basically set the character of an individual. That, that's pretty scary. That's pretty awesome. That's why I tell parents, don't miss a Sunday putting your child in the nursery, putting your child in a children's church, putting your child in the knowledge of the Word of God. Paul told Timothy, from a child, you have known the Holy Scriptures, and that's that zero to five age group. And they did. Jewish children memorized the entire Torah by the time they were 12. They, they were exposed. So don't wait until they're 10. Well, I think we'll start going to church. And if you didn't, I'm, I'm not saying anything bad, but just you that are parents, if you got them back there in the nursery, we, we have nursery workers. They kind of read the word of God to their kids, but we don't look at the church as the ones that are responsible for our children. I read the word of God to my kids every night of their life, every night. And it didn't matter if they were one or two. We always used a Bible story book and, you know, just mainly pictures. And then the older they got, got a little bit better. But the, when the new ones would come along, they were right in the middle of it. So every night, about 10 or 15 minutes, we'd read through a Bible story. We'd go around the circle and pray. So that first five years, 
I'm shaping their character. Now, this is a very important thing. I can't overstate it. It says that Abraham circumcised Isaac right off the bat in the first eight years. The first part, dedication. Dedicate them to the Lord. We're going to do that again at the end of the service. Number two is command them. You're going to dedicate them. You're going to command them. There's a verse for that in Genesis 18, 19. For I have chosen him, Abraham, that he may command his children. You see that phrase? That he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Now, I want to talk to you about the second phase, because first phase, first five years, so critical. Get them in the house of the Lord. Teach them the word of God. Explain to them about tithing. I taught my kids about tithing when they were four. Up 10 pennies on the table, one down at the other end. I remember Joel, I told him this weekend, I, I moved one penny down there, and Joel moved three more pennies down there. I said, no, 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 you, these nine are yours. That one is the Lord's. He said, no, Jesus doesn't have enough on his end of the table. Well, you know. That's how you teach a child to tithe. You teach him to pray. You teach him to tithe. You teach him to read the scripture. You teach him to go to church. All that's in the first five years. And then, and by the way, spanking should begin during that time as well. Because if you don't really, and I see three-year-olds, they hold their breath. They get on the floor and all that kind of stuff. By the way, did you know they will eventually breathe? Did you know that? You could almost go off and get on the phone or something because they are going to breathe. I never worried about that, but I, I did apply the Board of Education to the seat of higher learning very early in life. I did. And I know you, you know, people say, well, that's cruel, Dr. I remember about, heard about a lady that, uh, you know, ran up to a dad. He had, he had taken his child outside. He was spanking him over behind the car. She ran over and was beating him with an umbrella. And she was yelling child abuse. The child was just screaming bloody murder. She was yelling child abuse. The child just instantly stopped crying and looked at his dad and said, Dad, what's wrong with her? <laughs> Listen, they know. They, I, I've been watching little Fiona. She's three. And that's a crafty little girl. Now, can I tell you? And she, if you tell her she's going to get a spanking, she wails, screaming. And then if the, if the threat is over instantly, she can stop it. How many of you know kids can manipulate in those first five years? So do not, do not miss an opportunity to discipline in the first five years. The concrete is wet. Now in the second phase, he said, I want you to command your children. You're going to reach a point. This is age six through 10 where primarily they're having to learn to obey your commands. They don't have enough sense to come out of the street. So they have to operate on a command that when you say, come here, it's not later, it's not 10 minutes later. I mean, we used to say slow obedience is no obedience. That was our phrase. That if they're watching a TV show and you say, uh, call their name and they, they don't come, they stay there then that's when we moved in for discipline. Because you, if a child's in the middle of the road and a car's coming, you can't reason with them about why I'm coming, I'm coming. You can't reason with them. You, you have to command. They have to obey a command. And we, we would say, if we call your name, you need to say coming. We need to hear coming. The moment we'd say, Joe, coming. And, and whatever he was doing, 
he came in our direction. And, and it was just little things like that. Remember that when they're six to 10, that you're trying to get them to obey a command. And, and, and I want to, I want to introduce you to the principle of boundaries and consequences right here at this stage. Because when a child becomes six, they really have entered the age of accountability. You know, the first five years, ages of innocence, and I don't know, I know at four, I really got saved. So at some point, there's an age of accountability in there where they understand sin, they understand right and wrong. But I know at the age of six, I know that they do understand sin and right and wrong. They should be saved. They should be right with God by that time. You should help lead them to the Lord. But that is when they would understand the principle of boundaries. Now, I talked about boundaries all weekend. Melanie and I did. There's a great book called Boundaries by Dr. Cloud and Townsend, two tremendous Christian psychologists. And they believe that all relationships are based upon borders or boundaries. That if you fail to draw them, you're a very unhappy married couple the rest of your life. You're very unhappy in child discipline. They have a book called Boundaries for Kids. It changed my life. Everything changed when I read Boundaries for Kids. Because he basically said that the father drew a boundary around the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He said to Adam and Eve, you do not go into that tree and eat the fruit. And that's it. That's off limits. He said, there's millions of trees here. You can have all of them. They're all for you. I made the whole earth for you. But there's one thing, and that's God's authority. A boundary is authority. We like to say a border is the beginning of order. Order is in the word border. So if you don't have borders, you don't have order. And that in the second phase of their life, they're learning order. They're learning command. Think of it as military, really, because if they don't understand authority, discipline, and, and borders, then they will never fear God. They will never fear policemen. They will never fear teachers or principals or, or anybody. They will never submit to anybody. So drawing a border simply says, okay, don't go past the mailbox, that wherever the border is, you draw the border, you have the authority as the parent. There's the border, don't go past the mailbox. You know what they're gonna do? They're gonna go right out there to the mailbox and they're gonna look back at the house and then they're gonna put their foot a little bit over that line. It, I, I, I've never seen it fail because they want to know, does dad and mom really mean what they're saying? Do they really mean it? And for that reason, when you draw the border, you pronounce the consequence. Now, you should be writing some of this or remembering some of this because it's not just a border. You don't just say, don't go past the mailbox. You say, because if you do, this is what I'm going to do. Always attach a consequence to a border. And then, therefore, emotions get out of the equation. Most of you, you know, you discipline your kids by yelling at them their full name, their full legal name. Charles Lawrence, I told you. Well, you get all upset. You get where you lose your breath. You this and that. You're never going to do that again, ever, after this morning. You're never going to lose your temper. Because when you lose your temper, one of two things has not happened. You have not drawn a border that's clear, and they don't understand it, or you have not attached the consequence. So if I tell my kid, I want you to mow the grass, I'll be home at noon, and he's watching Nintendo. He says, okay, okay, Dad, no problem. I said, now, if you don't mow the grass, you're going to spend, you will go mow the grass and you're going to spend the rest of the day in your room away from your TVs and Nintendos and friends and all of that. Oh, okay, Dad, no problem. So I leave and I come back at noon and the grass is still unmowed two or three feet high outside. 
And he's just going. He's just right in the middle of it. So I just walk over and I just turn the TV off. And he goes crazy because he lost his game and all that. I say, hey, it's okay. He said, I see that you made a bad decision. You made a bad choice. See, it's about their choices now. (laughs) I said, no. Uh, remember what I told you. I need you to mow the grass by lunch. And if you didn't, you're going to go to your room. So immediately they have to go mow the grass. They go to their room. Now, see, I don't have to get emotional. If you're getting emotional, you're not drawing boundaries and you're not attaching consequences. That's, that's the whole deal. Parents, that just sets you free right there. Because they're the ones making the choices and boom, it triggers the consequence. See, now what that teaches a child is that when God draws a border, He also puts a consequence. God said, if you touch that tree or eat of it, in that day, you will surely die. And you know what? He forgave them, didn't he? He forgave them. He wrapped them in the garments of of, uh, animals and the blood covered their sin. Though he forgave them, he did not release them from the consequences. He escorted them out of the Garden of Eden and put two big angels there and said, don't come back or you're going to die. See, he followed through. You have to follow through. Parents, listen to me. If you, if you tell them a border and you attach the consequence and they manipulate you out of that consequence, and kids are good manipulators. I was a good one. They can deceive out of it. They can, they can throw their fit out of it. They can, many different methods of manipulation, but that is why children are in the condition they're in today in America is because principals don't bar borders and coaches don't draw borders and parents don't draw borders. But when they do, a child is secure. I played football and basketball. I wanted to know where is the sideline. Show me the boundaries. Show me the border. So if I'm running down the field, I know I can score a touchdown. Children feel secure when there's borders. So second phase of life, second phase, first is dedicate them to God and teach them the, the Lord and then begin to command them at six to 10 about how, because as Dr. Cloud says, the only thing that changes character is pain. Tweet that somewhere. <laughs> only thing. And they, they do need that. They're going to have to get punished. They're going to have to get some privileges removed. Whatever consequence you give them, if it's timeout. My parents never did timeout. They did blackout. They didn't do timeout. <laughs> How many of you had parents like that? Hey, no, 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 no comparison. Number three, it, it, first you're going to dedicate them. Then uh, you're going to command them. Nothing wrong. Don't reason with them. I see parents reasoning. Now, Mama told you this. Now, I, you should not. After all that reasoning, I don't reason with them. It's, it's, it's a command and a consequence. And then third is affirm them. Now, I, I dealt with this during the marriage conference on affirmation. Very, very critical. I'm finding that the biggest problem with children right now, of course, is boundaries, a lack of any borders. But the second problem would be rejection, a fatherlessness, an orphan spirit. Now, I only heard this term Tuesday for the first time in my life. But I believe that children, though they have parents, are being raised with an orphan spirit. What does that mean? A fatherlessness a sense that no one cares, no one knows where they are, or no one notices their accomplishments and achievements. 
And therefore, they get no feedback from a parent that they're doing a good job or they're becoming an adult or that they're proud of them or none of those types of things. I could preach a whole message just on affirmation. If you look at Jacob and Esau in the Bible, Jacob and Esau were twins. Jacob tried to pull his foot back in the womb so he could be born first. You remember the story. But he spent his whole life trying to catch up with his big brother. Well, the dad... Uh, Isaac loved Esau. He loved his hunting. He loved his food. He loved all that. But the mother attached to Jacob. And so all of the affirmation went to Esau. Wow, look at that deer you killed. Jacob got nothing. So when the time came for the blessing, you remember Jacob disguised himself as his brother. He put skins on his arms and he disguised his voice and he went into his blind father and said, I am Esau, bless me. You'll always see that a child who does not get affirmation poses as the other child who does get affirmation. It's very interesting to watch. They, they don't, they're not real because their own identity, they don't know their identity until they're affirmed. You need to hear this, parents, because if you don't affirm your children, they will never be secure, responsible, mature, and solid Christians. Never. They can't. They don't know God as a father because they didn't receive any affirmation. And finally, God changed Jacob, put his hip out of joint, and changed his name to Israel. And for the first time, he felt fathered. I'm looking around this room, and I guarantee you there are people here. Your father was anonymous or absentee or maybe even abusive. And you've got a big hole in your heart. I'm talking about ladies and men. Because a mother can encourage you, but only a father can affirm you. You need to remember that. And I know that as a dad, I have to affirm my children. So I was there at their ball games. I was there when they got an award, any kind of award. And in the snowflake generation right now, they gave them awards for just showing up. They gave them a trophy. So I've been to many a ceremony where it was most improved and most most kind and mo- you know, all that. But you know what? It was because for them, I was there. I remember playing basketball in high school when my dad would walk in the gym and go sit on the top row. And I started playing like a man from another world, man. I mean, I, I just played and played because my dad was in the building. Now, this, this 11 to 15-year-old age, it's critical. I mean, guys, it's critical that you take sons fishing with you, that you take them hunting with you, that you let them do projects with you, and you say good job about 15 times. Don't grab it away from them. Say, you're the clumsiest kid I've ever seen. You're not going to amount to anything. All of that is affecting their identity. When Jesus was baptized in water, his father showed up at that big day. He said, you are my son. That's identity. Whom I love, that's validity, validated him. And then he said this, in whom I'm well pleased. That's affirmation. A girl at ORU was number one in her class. She was brilliant. She studied at Oxford. Then she went to ORU and finished number one, way ahead of everybody. And gave the most brilliant valedictorian address ever in ORU's history. They filmed it and they used it for all their recruiting. The head of ORU told her afterwards, says, man, that was the most unbelievable five-minute speech I've ever heard from a student. And she started to weep. He said, what's wrong? It was amazing. She said, I have a hole in my heart. My father was not here. 
He said, well, why was he not here? Did he not get invited? Oh, yes, she said, I invited him. Said at 14, he kicked me and my mother out of our mansion, put us in an apartment and told both of us, I never want to hear your name again. I never want to hear from either one of you again. She said, I wrote him every week from the time I was 14. And I invited him to come and told him I'm the valedictorian of college. And said, I got a box with all those letters in it. Eight years of letters were all in that box. And a note on the outside said, I told you I never wanted to hear from you again. You know, is it any wonder we're having problems with kids? Is it any wonder, really? When they don't know that we affirm them, that we love them. And I could go way into that. But stage three is affirmation. Affirmation in large doses. And number four is protection. Protection. In Genesis 24 and verse 3, And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of one of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The fourth stage is age 16 to 20. He said to his servant, do not let my son marry a heathen. Now I want to speak to you about this 16 to 20 age because this is the age of protection. And this is very, very important. This is the age of adult decisions. I believe it. See, I know God called me to preach at 16, empty in a garbage can in the back of our church there at Bethany. He spoke to me in my spirit, said, I've called, you know, I've called you to preach, don't you? I heard it just as clear as a bell and had no thought about doing that. So God, God begins to deal 16, 17. That's when David, Joseph, 17, they started king at 30, but at 17, 16, 17, God ought to start talking to your kids about their future, their calling. But notice this, how much protection they need because a 16-year-old can easily get pregnant. There's so many mistakes that a 16-year-old would make with a car, with a girlfriend, you have no idea. So parents are zoned out. They're focused on their career. They're focused on their house, focused on their hedges. And they don't even know where their kid is. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak to parents. How many of you have a teenager over 16 years old? Raise up your hand. Well, listen, ain't no joke. Get your neck broke, brother. Because teenagers, you know, they have multiple personality disorder. <laughs> I like what Dave Ramsey said. Dave Ramsey says that at this stage, when his child does something, he asks them, he says, he tells him, he said, now there's a four-year-old in your body and there's a 34-year-old in your body. Which one am I speaking to right now? <laughs> because one minute they act like an adult. They want to be treated like an adult. Next minute they're acting like a child. They're acting like a four-year-old. So that, that, Dave Ramsey has a great thought about this. He says, at this stage of the game, 16 to 20, you, you uh, lead them by persuasion, not position. In 6 to 10, it's all about position. 
Don't talk back to me. I'm commanding you to do this. You don't need to know why. A six-year-old don't need to know why nothing. He don't reason nothing. He needs to obey. Come on, say amen. Amen. But a 16-year-old, you cannot assume the same position of authority over them and say, do what I say do. They want to know why. So you must lead them by persuasion. You must teach them why. Everything is why. And there's nothing wrong with that. When they're 16, they're soon to be launched. They could be holding a rifle in Iraq in two years. They need to know why. And so your whole posture changes at 16. You, in fact, many people have sort of a rite of passage at 16 because it's, it, it's a very critical thing that they understand at 16 that if they act like a four-year-old, they're going to be treated with a command. But if they'll act like a 34-year-old, they're going to be given all kinds of privileges. And you start loosening that icy grip you got on those kids at 16 you start relaxing it if they show responsibility if they're immature and running around like a crazy kid boom you lock down on them so it's all about how they respond at 16 17 by the way you don't spank children that are 16 they'll knock your block off that's way, way over really I mean like 12, 13, 14 that, that's, that, that's all over and, and so you don't, you know, that, that's the wrong approach. I know parents don't understand that, but 16 is way out of me. I know some dad take his daughter, whipping her at 16 years old. I say, are you crazy? You're, you're off your rocker, man. She's an adult. She's, she's moving into adulthood. And so this is very, very important. Protect them from bad influences. Bad company ruins good morals, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15. So protect them from the kids on your street. You know, I know you live in a neighborhood where they got all kind of heathen kids. Well, listen, don't let them go over there and stay over there and disappear. Make them all come to your house, play in your yard and be around you. We had the pool table. We put in a swimming pool just for our kids. We did all kinds of stuff just so our house was the place to be. And by the way, we never let them sleep over with anybody. If you study the statistics, most molestation of children takes place at a sleepover. Because the little child they're staying with is fine, but it's that uncle and their cousin. That's the one you've got to worry about. So we just told her, no, you ain't sleeping at their house. You play till your tongues hang out, and then you sleep at your bed. They'll sleep at their bed, marmor and young, start all over again. Hear what I'm saying. Protect your children. Know their whereabouts. A policeman will tell you that if you do not exactly know where they are and who's got eyes on them at that moment, you're in grave danger with your children. Now, right now, the cell phone has changed everything in life. Because children at 14, I remember picking up my son's cell phone at 14. And I saw a text from a girl in the children's church ministry where he ministered that she said, I love you too. When I picked up his phone and saw that, I just opened it. You say, how'd you do that? I just did it. And when I opened it, there was a thread where they were, I love you and I love you too. And they were going back and forth. She's, she's 16, he's 14. And I got, when he walked in, he's looking for his phone. I said, I got your phone. And I handed it to him. I said, you know what? You don't love anybody. You don't know what love is all about. And we're letting her know that this relationship is over. And he wept a few tears. But you know what? He did. 
he broke that off. That girl had no business doing that, but he had no business with a secret relationship. Come on, are you listening to me? And hear this, one year later, another boy got that girl pregnant. That could have been my son. Not that it wouldn't have worked, but if he'd have married her at 14, come on now. But it was only the Lord. You have to protect your children. Don't, don't walk around like an ostrich with your head in the sand. We're living in a generation now where things are moving very, very quickly. So yes, you're involved with them. You're protecting them and you're helping them in that stage to choose a life partner. You know, parents ask me all the time, should I get involved in who they marry? I say, do you want to live with a devil the rest of your life? Or do you even want their parents to be devils the rest of your life? Where your grandchildren are over there around all their whining and sipping and tipping and dipping and all their stuff? I don't. The only way you stop that is when they're little, you tell them, Daddy and Mom are going to help you to choose your person you're going to marry. And they giggle. They go, well, I'm never going to get married. I love you, Daddy. I love you. Yeah. Well, you just put that thought in their mind. And when they're about 18, I had one of them come to me one time. He had this girl. And I was in my trailer studying. He said, Dad, I think we're in love. He's about 19. I said, how do you know? He said, we're we just in love. And I, and I had been watching them. They fought like cats and dogs, these two. And I said, well, to be honest, I, I think that, you know, you guys are not, not really good for each other. I watch you. You fight continually. You have the identical personality. I don't think it will work. And the Lord is my witness. My son turned to that girl and he said, well, that's it. He did. And married a gorgeous girl that is now the pastor's wife of our church. And you know the interesting thing? That girl went and married another worship leader and they divorced within two years. That could have been my son. Now I'm going to talk to you parents. Do not hesitate to give your blessing or withhold your blessing. If their family is way out of line, if that child is out of line, if you see anything that concerns you, because parents, I'm dealing right now with it. The new generation is divorcing at 22, 23. They're married for two months. And that's all on the parents. And all six of ours married wonderful. And I had to, I had to steer them away from two or three. One of mine got involved with a, a guy over there in London. He, he bought a house, going to marry her. She was in school over there. I headed over there, brother, to London, and I met with him. I said, dude, I love you. You're a good Christian, but you are not my wife's, my, my daughter's husband. And thank God, hey, now you know, I'm going to tell you what he's into. But I, I, I'm just telling you, protect him. And here's the last one. I don't know even when my time is. I'm, I'm almost done. Anyway, release them. Release them. You dedicate them to the Lord. You command them. You affirm them. You protect them. And then Genesis 25, 5, and Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. They're going to have your money one day. They're going to have your boat, <laughs> your clothes, your condo, your rings, they gonna, jewelry. They're going to have all of it. I know my daddy, when he was 97, he, he didn't have anything. He gave his cars away. He gave everything away. And he said, Larry, I'm just totally in your care. I said, Papa, I got you. I got you. 
It was a joy of my life to take care of him his last seven years at my home. But those children that you're raising right now, one day will be taking care of you. So you got to release them. Abraham invested in his child and released him to the purposes of God. There's nothing worse. And I'm talking now about 21 and up. How many of you got kids in the 20s? Raise up your hand. You know, they used to talk about the terrible twos. They don't compare to the terrible 20s. Because those 20s, man, they're all over the map. And they got a big old gun in their hand while they're doing it. I mean, they can get a, they can, my, I have some of mine got concealed carries. They walk around packing heat. In their early 20s, I thought, Lord, have mercy. Who made that law? But that, hey, see, now let me just, let me just, let me just wrap this up by saying there's nothing worse than an insecure parent who dotes over their full grown son or daughter. They question every decision, inject their opinion into every direction. If you're like that, if you're hovering, hovering and smothering over your little darling, you think of them as five or eight or 11. You still got their little league pictures up and you treat them exactly the same. Brother, they're running from you as fast as they possibly can go. And as far, parents tell me, I don't understand. One of mine's in California, one's mine's in New York, one of mine's in Florida. I have to travel everywhere. I sit there and I think, I know why that is. Now, sometimes they do move. I've got them, you know, one's in Dallas and all. But if your kids are running from you and do not want to be away from you, you're smothering them. That means that you have to let them make mistakes, but never depart from your values. It's their vision, but your values. Here's how you release children. Number one, let them move out. Let them move out. I know some of you are scared to death for them to move out, but they need to. They need to feel what a utility bill is all about. My boys moved out at 18, both got an apartment, and they cut the utilities off to that apartment six different times. <laughs> you know why? They didn't pay the bill. They sat around with no air conditioning one time several days and called me, wanting me to go pay the bill. I said, I ain't paying no bill. You need to sweat, dude. That's what you need because it's called responsibility but some of you run down there help them get that air conditioning on don't you do that let them move out and if they go to college they're living with you at 22 they move out it ain't cool to be 31 and still living with mama eating her grits and eggs you know what i'm talking about i mean when a baby's sucking a bottle that's cute but when you got to part the whiskers to get the <laughs> bottle in that's freaky Number two, make them get a job. They need any kind of a job. Oh, well, I'll pay for them all the way through college. And I'm going to pay for their first car. I'm going to pay for their... And I understand. I've helped my children. Don't get me wrong. I have. But can I tell you, they got a job. Mine got a job at 14. We hired them at the church, or they got a job at a little local place, a little nursery or something. But they, they all... Learn to earn their money and save their money and tithe their money. They did 10, 10, 80, tithe 10%, save 10%, and spend 80%. We taught them that from the time they were little and the time they grew up. You let them get a job, absolutely. And then number three, do not bail them out. If they get a ticket, 
Make them go. They got to go to court. They have to pay that ticket. Well, they don't have the money. Well, then they lose their license. Because if the moment you pay that ticket or you help them out of that fight or if you bond them out of jail, now I want to say a word to you parents. Because I told mine when they were little, if you get caught going 100 miles an hour in a car in a city and they put you in jail, that's what they do when you're going 100 miles an hour in orange pajamas, eating tuna fish and sleeping on a metal tray. If, if they do that, I am not coming to get you. Because you've done something that you need some time out, brother. You need to be there. And there's some bad people in jail. One of them I went to jail one time. He was in a car with a guy, had some pills. They arrested both of them, put them both in jail. The dad of the guy that had the pills came, bailed him out that night. Mine called me on the phone. Dad, there's some terrible people down here. I said, I know that, son. I told you that for years and years. I've always told you, if you go to jail, you're going to be there. Dad, please come get me tonight. Please, please. But he was away from God. I knew that's exactly where he needed to be. So I said, son, we love you. I'd give anything to trade places. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. But for three weeks, he sat in there. And you know, his life turned completely around. When he came out of that jail, he headed straight for rehabilitation. The prodigal son never came home until he was in a hog pen where there was no food. It's the circumstances that drive them back to you. If you bail them out, you, you, they call it codependence. You are actually assuming the pain that would change their character. Somebody ought to be saying amen right now. And then only give your opinion when it's asked for. And finally, do not bring open sin and immorality into your home, particularly if you have younger children. If they get away from God in their 20s and you want to let them come on back home, sleep in their old bedroom, but you've got your other little kids and they walk in drunk and they got that, you don't do that. Uh-uh. That's not where they belong. They, you have the standard of life. Now, let's just close. Let's say, look, how about in this service? What, what, where would you say you are with God? Are you his child? Has he dedicated you to his purposes? Have you learned to obey his commands? Have you heard his affirmation in your life of I love you, I'm proud of you, you're mine, you belong to me? Very, 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 very important. Do you feel his protection of the Holy Spirit guiding you away from wrong people, wrong decisions, wrong choices? And has he released you into your calling? He released me. God, at 30, I became pastor of Bethany. He released me. 28 years I pastored that church. And now I'm releasing my sons. My Jonathan is 36. He's been our pastor six years. He had 11,000 people saved last year. I've released him. I don't know how much money Bethany has. I don't go to any meetings. I'm not involved because I've released him. How about you? Where, where, where are you with the Lord? I want you to close your eyes with me right now. The Lord is here. And I just believe there are people here that you would say, you know, I don't know. For actual fact, that I am God's child. Oh, you say, well, everybody's God's child. No. Jesus told the Pharisees, you're of your father, the devil. He's the father of this world. He's the one running the ship in people's lives. But if today you would say to me, you know what, pastor? I want to change fathers.
I want to submit my life to the Heavenly Father, His gracious, loving, kind, compassionate person named God, the Father. And if you're here and you would say, pray for me, I I really need that. I need to get right with God. I'm going to look from left to right because I can't see every direction the way the building is set up. But wherever you are, nobody's looking. And you would say, please, Pastor, include me in that prayer. Here's what I want you to do. Without hesitation, slip up your hand right in your seat and say, include me in that prayer. Do it. Lift it up high right now. That's right. Lift it up high. See your hand right there. I need to get right with God back there back there in this middle section you just lift it up high without hesitation there 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 god bless you the lord is dealing with your life now father i thank you that you're at you're at work in the lives of these people these precious believers i want you to put your hand over your heart if you if you raised your hand or even if you didn't i want you to put your hand over your heart and let's all pray this out loud say heavenly father Today I come to the cross. I need forgiveness. And I ask you to write my name in the book of life. I surrender to you. I love you, Jesus. Help me to follow you. To obey your commands. To hear your voice. To follow your protection. And to do your will. I thank you, Father. I want everybody to stand and I'm going to pray a blessing over you. I'm going to pray a blessing over your family and your children. Would you just reach your hands up to the Heavenly Father? That word in Hebrew means to touch the throne. When you lift up your hands, you touch the throne. You're you're literally touching the throne of God. Father, I speak a blessing over the people at Family Life Church, this nine o'clock service. I speak a blessing over you and your wife for this Valentine's weekend that your marriage may be blessed and that the children that issue forth from this union will change the world. They will not be troublemakers. They will be peacemakers. They will be people of integrity. They will be people who affect the political systems and the economic systems of the world. They will be people who travel the world proclaiming the gospel. They will then bear their own children who will be raised up in the fear of the Lord. And those children will bear children and you will have four generations of blessing. Even if your own parents were not saved, I decree a new family line, a new DNA and a new spirit. There's no orphan spirit in your family, but all of your children feel adopted and and affirmed in to the kingdom of God. I bless you. I bless your household. I bless your family. I bless and remove every curse from you from four generations back. And I say, devil, be gone from our children, those that are backslidden. We lift up our eyes and we see them coming over the hill. They're coming home. We call them home. We call them back into the purposes of God. And we thank you for it together in Jesus' mighty name. Come on, everybody, put your hands together. Let's give the Lord praise for them.